you please take your Bibles this morning and open them with me to Mark chapter 15. Mark 15, we're going to begin a reading at verse number 22. Mark 15, 22, this passage picks up with Jesus on his way to the cross. It is around nine in the morning on crucifixion day. The day of the church uh, traditionally refers to as Good Friday. And for the next six hours, Jesus will hang on the cross until he dies. That is where we're at in Mark 15 this morning. Follow along with me as I read it, beginning at verse number 22. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of the skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. They crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priest and with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others, but he cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. Verse 33. And when the sixth hour had come, There was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lema sabachthani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, Behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed, and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. Verse 37, And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, Truly, this man was the Son of God. There were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James the younger, and Joseph and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him, and and there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. Lord, we ask your blessing. Upon this reading of your word, God, take this inspired, inerrant, infallible, authoritative, and sufficient word now and apply it to our hearts by faith 
so that we might be changed and deeply affected by what we have read this morning and the truths contained therein. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Many of you have told me over the years how much you love the hymn, The Old Rugged Cross, which we just sang this morning. It is a powerful hymn that reminds us that the cross is one of the most provocative symbols in human history. It is, as George Bernard, the hymn writer, wrote, an emblem of suffering and shame. But over the centuries, the cross has been sanitized, (laughs) hasn't it? It's been sanitized. You may even be here today wearing a cross of gold around your neck. Or you may have a cross hung on the wall of your home. Friends, the cross of gold around your neck is polished and clean. The cross that hangs on our walls and our homes is not soaked in crimson blood. The brutality of the cross is lost upon most Christians today. Most anybody today. But more important than the image of the cross's violence and its brutality is the message of the cross. That Jesus suffered and died in the place of sinners. He was forsaken so that we might be forgiven. And that is exactly what Mark shows us in this passage today. So let's look at it together and behold once again the sin-bearing, wrath-satisfying death of Jesus in our place. Those three words, in our place, need to resonate in our hearts and minds throughout the duration of this service. It was in our place that all these things happened. The first thing that we see here in this passage is that Jesus dies in shame. He dies in shame. Verse 22 says, They brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, They offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. Before being fastened to the cross with nails, the condemned would often be offered a sort of narcotic drink of wine mixed with myrrh. This would help deaden the pain of crucifixion. But Jesus refused it. He chose to face this moment with full clarity of mind, bearing the full weight of our shame, of our sin. Verse 24, They crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. 
You know, Mark writing this gospel, getting this information from Peter, he uses remarkable restraint in describing the crucifixion of Jesus. He simply says, and they crucified him. But you see, the readers of Mark's gospel would have been very familiar with crucifixion. So details were unnecessary. But you and I, we have never seen someone crucified. So we need some help. One New Testament scholar says this, Crucifixion was considered the most agonizing and degrading form of criminal execution known in antiquity. It was meant to be death by slow torture. Although a victim could die faster from shock due to blood loss, they could spend a few days dying of dehydration or perhaps asphyxiation. They suffocated. Hanging naked before crowds, unable to hold back one's bodily waste or swat flies from wounds, was also meant to humiliate the victim. In modern times, great care is taken to execute those sentenced to death in the most humane way possible, isn't it? (laughs) But not crucifixion. This was designed to prolong suffering and humiliation. During the Jewish war of the first century from AD 66, I think, to a little after AD 70, 73, I want to say. The historian Josephus, he, he writes that, quote, Out of rage and hatred, the Roman soldiers amused themselves by nailing their prisoners in different postures, end quote. You remember church tradition says that when Peter was martyred, He was crucified, but unwilling to be crucified like his Lord, he asked to be crucified upside down. Roman executioners were brutal. They were merciless. And here, they stripped Jesus naked of his clothes. And they cast lots. That's sort of, you know, a modern day kind of rolling the dice to see who would get his clothes. This was a mockery. This was deep humiliation. Verse 27. And with him, with Jesus, they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. Now, these may very well and probably were the insurrectionists who were condemned to die with Barabbas. Remember him? (laughs) He was the one who was set free so that Jesus would be crucified in his place. Thus fulfilling Isaiah 53 verse 12, that the suffering servant would be numbered with the transgressors. As Mark says in verse 28, though Jesus committed no transgression of his own. And so he dies 
and shame. But friends, this is not his shame. This is our shame. This was the death that we deserved. Not him. (laughs) Secondly, in this passage, we see that Jesus not only dies in shame, he dies in ridicule. He dies in ridicule. Crucifixion was carried out in public view. Often along busy roads, high traffic areas. And so verse 29 then gives us the context. It says, those who passed by derided him. They wagging their heads saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Save yourself and come down from the cross. Have you ever seen something or heard something or experienced something that just caused you to shake your head in disbelief or disgust? That's what Jesus was to those in public eye who were passing by the cross on Golgotha's hill. They wagged their heads at him. Perhaps they were among those who heard earlier the accusation of the religious leaders that Jesus claimed that he could destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Yet here he is, dying, bleeding to death, mocked naked on the cross. Then in verse 31, the religious leaders and the two thieves, they they join the chorus of ridicule. Mark says, So also the chief priest with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, Well, he saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. The religious leader's challenge was the same as those who passed by. If you really are who you say you are, then come down from the cross. That we might see and believe. And friends, this is the same challenge that unbelievers today still lob at the Lord Jesus Christ. Prove yourself and we will believe. But we know better, don't we? Because how many have experienced the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ through the preaching of His gospel week after week, perhaps even sitting in these very pews? Or who hear the gospel through a friend or loved one or a neighbor and yet still do not believe? If they refused to believe, who saw his miracles, who heard his teaching, why should we expect any different today? The truth is, 
that if Jesus had come down off the cross in the fullness of his glory, then those ridiculing him would have still not believed. But what about us this morning? Will we see Christ on Calvary, on Golgotha, crucified, buried, and raised in the gospel week after week and still not believe? Maybe you're listening online or watching or hearing this message in the future. It's a message you've heard before. Jesus died for sinners. Will you believe? Or will you say, come down from the cross that we may see and believe? The chief priest said, they said, the one who saved others, (laughs) he can't even save himself. But isn't there a thick irony in their mockery? Isn't there something ironic about it? Because that is precisely what Jesus came to do. Not to save himself, but to save others. 1 Corinthians 15.3, Paul says that Christ died for our sins. Galatians 1.4, Christ gave himself for our sins. 1 Peter 2.24, he himself bore our sins in His body on the tree. You see, Jesus was being punished for others. He was being punished in our place. In theology, we call this penal substitutionary atonement. And friends, this is the very heart of the gospel. If you remove penal substitutionary from atonement from the gospel, then you don't have the gospel. His mission was to go to the cross, not to come down from it. His mission was to die for us in our place, not to save his life. We sang it. This morning to open our service. And can it be (laughs) that I should gain an interest in my Savior's blood dying? For who? For me. What does Charles Wesley write? I caused his pain. Are those just words on a screen to us, friends? Just words in a hymnal? Do you feel that? I caused his pain. For me, who him to death pursued. Wesley writes in his great hymn. Friends, can you hear your own voices here among the mockers at the cross? Can you pick your voice out among those scoffing at him? I can. I hear my voice there. Because it was my sin that he was being punished for. 
And if that doesn't sit well with you this morning, friends, that Jesus hung naked in shame, in ridicule, because of you and because of me, then we do not understand the depth of our sin. Nor do we understand the holiness of God that would require such an act to redeem us. It was for us that He died in shame. It was for us that He died in ridicule. And it was for us that He died forsaken by all. Everybody had already left Him. Judas had betrayed Him. His disciples had fled. Even Mark had run out of his clothes to get away in the Garden of Gethsemane. Peter, for as bold as he was, had already denied him three times. Everybody was gone except for what? His father. But now, even his father would forsake him. This brings us to our last point this morning. That Jesus dies alone. He dies alone. Look with me at verse 33. When the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. It's an Aramaic phrase which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus is quoting from Psalm 22, 1 here. Psalm 22, 1, straight. It's now 12 p.m. He has been hanging on the cross for three hours, and darkness begins to hover over Judea. But this is no eclipse of the sun. (laughs) This is the supernatural darkness as God the Father turns His all-seeing eyes away from Golgotha's hill where His innocent and sinless Son was absorbing every ounce of His wrath against sin. You see, Isaiah 53 says, It was the will of the Lord to bruise him. This is where the cross work of Christ reaches its climax. And in His infinite holiness, God the Father cannot look upon what His Son has become. Can't look at Him. Altogether, the Gospels, all four Gospels, they they give us seven statements that Jesus makes from the cross. But only one is recorded here in Mark because He wants us to see up close the Son forsaken by His Father. 
R.C. Sproul says this, God turned away the light of His countenance, refusing for the first time to gaze on His Son as He carried the full measure of the pollution of our wickedness. and obscenity, God is too holy to behold. At the climax of that period of darkness, Jesus cried out in agony, not the agony of the scourging, or the agony of the thorns and nails, but the agony of forsakenness. Imagine being on your deathbed and not being able to call out for your father or your mother. No one is with you. You are dying alone. Mark tells us that the people heard Jesus cry, heard him cry out, and they thought he was calling for Elijah. Verse 36 says, And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine. This is the second time Jesus has been offered some type of wine. They put it on a reed, and and they gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, Let us see whether Elijah will come and take him down. (laughs) Still testing him. Still trying to prove him. See, some Jews believe that the prophet Elijah would, would occasionally, at times, be sent by God to help his servants. But they misheard what Jesus said likely because of his weakened condition. Jesus was not calling for Elijah. He was calling for his father. Who had turned away from him. Oh, friends, imagine the scene in heaven as best you can. Imagine this scene. What divine restraint the angel armies must have had to watch their king suffer like this and be unable to do anything about it. To see him abused, mocked at the hands of of filthy sinners and to have to watch it. The high king of heaven nailed to an earthly tree. But this was the father's plan. His eternal plan of redemption, wasn't it? The promise of Genesis 3.15 to send a redeemer who would crush the head of Satan but whose heel would be bruised in death was finally fulfilled. And now in verse 37, Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. John, in his gospel, chapter 19, verse 30, says this, When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. 
And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Redemption was accomplished. Jesus paid our sin debt in full. And then he bowed his head and died. Verse 38, and the curtain, your, your translation may say the veil. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The veil of the temple, the curtain, it separated the holy place from the most holy place where God's presence would come to dwell. Meaning that through Christ, the great barrier between God and man was destroyed. And now, as the author of Hebrews says in Hebrews 10 verse 19, we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that He opened for us through the curtain. Jesus ripped that curtain open for us with His death, friends. Gospel songwriter Bill Gaither, I know many of you appreciate his, his ministry and music. Bill Gaither, he captures the significance of this moment in one of his songs. He says this, From Eden to Golgotha's hill across the sands of time came love to buy back fallen man. God's son would have to die. A shout split history in two, and it echoed through the skies. The Father heard, Thy will tis done. Then He bowed His head and died. So friends, if Jesus has accomplished our salvation for us, then why do we so often try to do it ourselves? By thinking that we can be good enough. That if we do enough good works, then we can earn forgiveness. That God will be satisfied with us if we are a good person. No. We cannot make ourselves right with God. Only Jesus can do that. And He has done that. But how often do we just not get it? I think if we were to ask most of us this morning here in this sanctuary, do you consider yourself to be a good person? I would venture to say the majority answer would be yes. I I am a good person. No. We are not good people. We may have an external surface, superficial goodness that might satisfy the local rotary club or the local school club that has certain requirements to get in. But we, in our goodness, can never satisfy the righteousness of a holy God. 
On our very best days, Isaiah says that our righteousness is like filthy rags. We needed a Savior. We needed a substitute. That's what Calvary is. His death for us. His life for us. His resurrection for us. But we just don't get it. But there was one here at Golgotha's Hill who did get it. Look at verse number 39. And when the centurion stood facing him, saw that in this way he breathed his last. He said, truly, this man was the Son of God. This pagan Roman soldier recognized what Israel's leaders, what so many of us today refuse to see, that Jesus was who he said he was. He did what only he could do, not what we could do. If we could do it, then he didn't need to do it. So are we going to be like those who shook their heads at Jesus? Or the religious leaders who told Him to come down, prove yourself and we'll believe. Are we going to be like them? Or are we going to be like this sinful centurion who saw Christ for what and who He was and say, truly, He is the Son of God. Verses 40 and 41, Mark adds sort of a, an interesting detail about the women who were there at the cross. They were watching from a distance. Will we join these women as witnesses to his death, his burial, his resurrection? They were there. Some of them were at his resurrection. That's next, well, next time. Or will we just leave here this morning unaffected, unchanged by the person and work of Jesus on the cross? Is that how we're going to leave? Friends, I pray that you look upon once again the old rugged cross that emblem of suffering and shame. It is despised by this world. It is foolishness to them, Paul said in 1 Corinthians. The preaching of the cross is folly to those who don't believe. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Is this a fashion statement for you, this cross? Or is it your life? Will you look once again upon this cross and turn to Christ in repentance and faith? I pray. I pray we do. Let's bow for prayer. Lord, we're